Morning, church. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Tim, and I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's, and I'm so excited to be sharing God's Word for you as we draw to a close in our series of Galatians. Uh, before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have saved us and how you have freed us through your Son. We ask, O oh Father, that you speak to us, enable us to hear you rightly. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a community of your people, transformed by your gospel, that we may rightly devote ourselves to the things that are of eternal worth. And we ask this in the name of your precious Son. Amen. I'd like to begin us by asking, how would you recognize a Malaysian outside of Malaysia? Imagine, you're in another country, far away, um, and the, it's the last place you'd expect to bump into another Malaysian, right? And suddenly, you hear behind you, someone says, Hey, Macha, you want to makan here or tapau? Hey, that's a Malaysian right there, right? Because you have a simple sentence about food, right, that coherently combines Tamil, Malay, English, and Cantonese. Uh, it's a Malaysian thing, all right? You just have to be here to know it. But of course, there are other less than ideal ways of recognizing a Malaysian outside of Malaysia, isn't it? So imagine you see there's a, a road, right, crossing, and someone crosses the road just in the middle, ignores a pedestrian, cross, a pedestrian bridge, ignores the pedestrian light, ignores the zebra crossing, just crosses with the power of the hand. That's a Malaysian, isn't it? Now, where am I going with this? You see, when we turn it back on us as Christians, how does one recognize a Christian outside of the church, outside of a Sunday morning, in the workplace, in public places? How do people know that we are a Christian? Because we wear cross-shaped jewelry? I mean, nothing wrong with that. Or because we wear camp t-shirts with Bible verses on the back? You see, Jesus pointed out how this should, how this should happen. In John 13, verse 35, he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love for one another. And how does this fit in to our passage today and where we've been all this while through Galatians? So, we've seen earlier in Galatians 5, 14, that Paul says that the entire law, the entire Old Testament law, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we add that on to what Jesus taught in Matthew 22. That Jesus says, the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's the greatest commandment of the law. And that the second is like it. Then that's where he places, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That this command to love your neighbor is an expression of our love for God. That we love God by loving everyone who bears his image. And that is the law. And the law is good. It's good to be loving, to be honoring God and loving those made in His image, isn't it? But what's the problem? We're not good, right? As Paul lays out in Galatians, um, we've seen how our love is selfish. Our love falls short of God's perfect standard and it violates God's law. And because God is holy, He's just, He's righteous, He will punish evil. He will destroy evil. And all that goes against his law with a curse. And that's in Galatians 3. And God has the right to do so. He's the uniquely, he uniquely has the right to do so because he is the creator of the universe. He created everything and he created everything good. So everything belongs to him. And as his creation, we didn't just ignore him or turn away from him. But we, in our selfishness, we wreak havoc on God's good world. 
Again, I said our love is inherently selfish. We look out for our benefit, our comfort, our convenience. And at most times, all these things that we seek comes at the expense of someone else. And, and, and this is evil in God's sight. And you look outside, you don't have to look too far. You, you see uh, the rich getting rich off the backs of the poor. You see people's comfort at the expense of the environment. We are naturally selfish. And this natural tendency of ours to destroy God's good law and good work is what Paul in Galatians calls the flesh. So last week in our passage, we saw that the flesh also results in things like envy, anger, jealousy, divisions, strife. That, that we are by default enslaved. Enslaved because our love doesn't meet God's standard, enslaved under the curse of the law, and enslaved by the desires of the flesh to be selfish. And that nothing we can do can free ourselves from this slavery. And that's the bad news, isn't it? But the gospel means the good news. The good news is that God freed us. God did that for us by sending Christ, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's Galatians 3.13 that the law states that cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So Jesus hung on the cross as a curse under the law, our curse, bearing our death, bearing our sins, bearing our shame, and completely paid the price that we deserved. For those who believe in Christ, we have been united with Him in faith and we receive adoption as sons. And that's Galatians 4 verse 5. We are no longer slaves. In Christ, we have true freedom. Now, if you're with us today and Christianity is new to you, maybe Christ, this, all this, uh, you've just walked in randomly for whatever reason, then you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. But if you're, you're thinking about what I'm saying, and said, no, I, I don't have Christ, but I'm not a slave, right? You will, you will have questions as this sermon progresses. Uh, but I hope... Uh, what I speak about true freedom may, may strike a chord for you. And if that is you, if it picks your interest, if you're among us here today, be it physically or online, I invite you to reach out to us. Uh, if you have questions, we'd love to answer them and chat with you more about what it truly does mean to have true freedom. Okay? But for the rest of us, this true freedom, as we have seen, is given by Christ and is lived out by the Spirit. And that's what we saw last week. That the life lived by the Spirit is defined by the law of Christ, which is to love one another. So today, in our passage today, so that's a very lengthy introduction, right? But it was necessary because today is the practical outworking of all that we've done. To how, what does it mean? How does it look like to live by the Spirit? So today, Paul will give practical instructions on how being led by the Spirit looks like, how fulfilling the law of Christ can look like in two ways. The first way is how believers led by the Spirit live in community as they are shaped by the gospel. And that's our first section for today, that gospel community humbly bears each other's burdens. And that's our first five verses. And the next way that it's worked out practically is that believers led by the Spirit devote themselves to the Spirit's work. And that's our second half of our message today, which is gospel community prioritizes gospel ministry. So just two sections for today, yeah? But the main takeaway for the whole message is that believers are a spirit-led community devoted to the gospel's work in each other. So let's start with the first, in verse 1, that gospel community humbly bears each other's burdens. So we read verse 1. 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in a state of in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. So again, we start our passage with the address of brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who share um, Christ's sonship. The entire passage today is addressing Christians. Okay? We're talking about Christians here. So what are Christians to do? If any one of us is caught in transgression, is taken by, over by sin, has falls into sin, you who are spiritual. Now, Paul's not saying a separate level of Christian, only the spiritual, only the, the pastors or seminary trained people who are spiritual. No, no, no. It's all believers. If you're a believer, you're shaped by the gospel, you're led by the spirit, you are spiritual. All of us, right? All of us should restore him or her, in a spirit of gentleness. And I need to unpack this word a bit. Uh, Usually when we think of the word gentleness, we think of something soft, fluffy, like a pillow or a silk or a feather. But that's not the Bible's use of this word. The the way that's typically painted of the picture is of gentle strength, of strength that is under control. And a common image is that of a stallion, uh, a horse, right? A, A wild horse that can run... 60, 70 km per hour. Uh, there's a reason why we measure like our vehicles, we use horsepower as a, as a measurement of how much, how powerful the engine is. Um, if, you, if you see a wild stallion running like the wind, that's unconstrained power, isn't it? But it's unconstrained. You can't, put, you can't ride the stallion safely. Right? They'll kick you off and kick you in the head and kill you. But the stallion who has been tamed, who has been trained, that strength has been brought under control, so safe that you could place a child on his back and the horse would know how to adjust to not throw its rider. Another image that I like about this gentle strength is that of the elephant's trunk. You know, elephants have a very long trunk, so strong that they can uproot whole trees, from, right? pull up from the ground, but yet the trunk is capable of delicate motion that they can pick up a tortilla chip. There's an actual video of this, right? They pick up a tortilla chip whole without breaking it. And that's the idea of gentle strength, that we are to restore in a gentle and delicate way, yes, but not without strength, not without firmness. And Paul adds on here that we are to also do so in a way to watch over ourselves, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, that we help, we restore, not in a way as people who are immune to sin, that won't sin, right? Humility in this way also means that we are also dependent on God, recognizing that we need God as well, that we are vulnerable to sin as well. And this restoration, this humble restoration, is how we understand the next verse when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens, to carry it, uh, is the same word and same image used when the Bible describes that Christ carries our infirmities. He carries our disease and sorrow so too should we be carrying our brother and sister's sin when they fall into sin. And doing this, loving each other in this way, is what fulfills the law of Christ. Because this is an expression of love, as I mentioned above. So, putting it together, in bearing each other's burdens, we are to be loving, doing so out of love, loving each other in the way that the law was meant to point us to. And we need to be humble when we do so, because Paul is aware of a tendency that when we help another person in their sin, there's a very natural tendency for pride to creep in. And that's what he gets at at verse 3. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And Paul is referring here to the deception 
the deceptive power of pride. You see, when we look at other people's failings where they fall short, it is so easy to go, wow, at least I don't screw up that bad. I mean, I'm not saying I'm good, I'm perfect, but wow, I mean, can you believe the mess this other person is, right? It's sinful, right? It's pride. And, and to, to go out to point out other people's failings to make yourself feel better, no, that, that, that's, that's not the way it should be. But another way, that's the obvious way, but another way pride comes in that's a bit more subtle and I think it's far more pervasive is that we can be quick to offer help but not be quick to receive help. You see, there's a position of power at play and it says, I'm helping you. I'm, I'm the one always helping you, right? But I do not want to be vulnerable. I do not want to be in a position where other people need to help me. I don't admit that I have a problem. Now, why is that, a, why is that bad? Because you see, all of us have blind spots. All of us have blind spots, myself included, all of us here, personally as well as spiritually. To think that you have no failings or even to think that you can be aware of your failings and, and fix yourself is to deceive yourself, right? They're called blind spots for a reason because they're blind to the person having them, right? So the only way that we can be aware of our weaknesses, our, fa our failings, our blind spots, is for someone else to point them out to us. And, and likewise, I mean, if you see something in me that's questionable, feel free to come up to me and say it because I can't see it. I need you to help me grow as a Christian, right? And that's what Paul means when he says, let, so how do, how do we understand that with the next verses of like how, uh, let each one test his own work. For then his reason to be both will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. So how we understand that is that instead of boasting by comparing, that's what social media does, right? We compare so that we feel better, right? Instead of that, Paul calls us to assess our own lives. The basis for us standing before God is how well we live by the Spirit, how well we love our brothers and sisters. Now, then we come to verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, just three verses ago, Paul was saying, bear each other's burdens. And here he's saying, you have to bear your own load. What's going on here? Is it the contradiction, right? Now, I'll suggest it's not the same, it's not the contradiction, because two different things are in mind here. The first bearing is about the burden to care, to bear your brother and sister, to love, the duty to love one another, to not be self-focused, but to be other-focused, to love. And the second bearing is about how we give an account of how well we did this duty of love. You see, we stand before God, that God views us on, this, on, on, this, uh, on, on, on our obedience on how well we live by the Spirit, not based on how better we are than others. How well have we responded? How well have we submitted to the Spirit? Right? Of course, in a general way, our justification is by Christ alone. But there's another way in which what we do for God, how much we submit to God, right, will be um, when we stand before Him and that's what we have to give an account for. And this leads us to our first principle, which is believers in love humbly restore each other from sin. So we've talked about how the gospel, the good news reveal how much God loves us, that He would die for us. So believers, as we believe in this message of the gospel, we are transformed by God's love to love God in return by loving the people that He loves. So how do we, what, what do we do when our loved one makes serious mistakes? Imagine a family, a close family member or a close friend starts taking on credit card debt 
because they are maintaining uh, an unsustainable lifestyle. You know, they're just not fully paying their credit card and they have no way of paying the credit card and their interest just keeps piling up. What do we do? If you love them, if we truly love them, we will do all we can to warn them, to, to slap them awake in a sense, right? Wake up! You're in debt and you're, there's no way out. You're digging yourself deeper and deeper in this hole by using another credit card to cover another credit card and so, and so on and so forth, right? To wake them up. And if they're willing to, 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 to step in to help them get their finances in order, okay, stop, cut this, consolidate this and, and, and pay off this debt because financial debt can wreck you. It's no joke, right? Financial debt can, can wreck someone for years. But sin can wreck someone for an eternity. And not just that person, isn't it? Because sin has an insidious way of spreading to the ones closest. That the loved ones, their family, their friends are all affected by that sin. So it behooves us as Christians, as believers, if we are led by the Spirit, we cannot afford to stand idly by if our brother and sister are in sin and we see that sin spreading. But if that is the case, if that is, that's why it's so important, why aren't we doing it more? Why isn't the church known for a culture of calling out sin? One main reason I can think of is that, you know, we're we are Asian in the sense of like, we don't like confrontation. Maybe if you ignore it, the problem will go away. Let's just don't bring it up. Let's just sweep it under the carpet. And that's a sinful tendency, isn't it? Because that's not true care. Just as leaving someone in credit card debt alone is not loving. But, the, but even if one musters enough courage to bring that up to another person, very likely, maybe from experience or from what we've seen, the response may not be helpful either. Right? We can get shot back. Because uh, the, the other person maybe, uh, may either, number one, refuse to acknowledge they have a problem. I don't have the problem. I never do that. What are you talking about? Are you delusional, right? They're in denial or they attack you in return, right? Number two, they, they say like, you, you think I've got problems? What about you? You've got this problem too, right? They'll, they'll attack you in return or they could take it, take it passive aggressively and say like, yes, yes, I'm, I'm the worst person or you should not, uh, I'm the worst. Uh, and then they just don't change as well. So criticism is rarely received well. And it's not helpful that, like I said, there are people out there who want to step on others to puff themselves up. So criticism can, is rarely received well also because there's a tendency for criticism to be given to boost others', others pride and no one, no one likes uh, to, to make someone more proud, isn't it? So how best can we address sin? May I suggest that criticism, right, that, that addressing one's sin has a higher chance of being received if the one receiving it can perceive that it's given in love. Criticism has a higher chance of being received if the one receiving it perceives the love behind that criticism. Yeah? But this is impossible to happen outside of the context of trust, outside the context of a relationship, right? There's a difference between if someone trusts me and tells me that, Tim, you have a problem, right? Someone I know, someone I trust, whom I have a friendship with, and they tell me, Tim, you have a problem. I'll listen because this fella or this person, he or she knows me. But for a stranger who, you know, walks on the street and says, hey, you, you got a problem. I'll be like, okay, whatever floats your boat, you know, I'll just walk away. I'll brush it off. It's so easy. It's so much easier to brush off the comments of a stranger, isn't it? So when it comes to the church, when it comes to us, right, 
If there is someone in your midst whose sin you are aware of, the loving thing to do is to not let them remain there. That's number one. So would I be willing, first ask yourself, will I be willing to speak into this? Will I be willing to love this person? Will I be willing to obey the Spirit's leading to speak into this sin that I'm now aware of? Number two, am I doing so out of love? Do I genuinely love and care this person? Or am I seeking to do so out of my own pride? Number three, how best can I convey this criticism that it will be received in love? Does this other person know that I love them? And this cannot be done if, you just, if you've never had a conversation even, right? If you don't know each other, if you don't even after service hang around the tea terrace and chat. Believers are a spirit-led community that's devoted to the gospel's work in each other. One cannot love God and hate his church. Just as you cannot tell me that you love me, but you hate my children. Believers, Christians, we who have been transformed by the gospel, we seek, we need to seek, the, we, we eagerly want the gospel to work itself out in each other's lives. And we will see next, not just the gospel's work in each other, but the gospel's work itself. And we come to the next section where Paul says, where, where, where gospel community prioritizes gospel ministry. So Paul says in verse 6, let the one who is taught share all good things with the one who teaches. Taught the word, uh, the word here refers to the law of Christ or with regards to the Christian faith, with regards to the gospel. To share all good things. So the word share here, when it's hard to tell from this context, this passage, what it means by sharing all good things. Doesn't mean if I have one nasi lemak, I share half. No. Uh, the, the context, if you see other passages, Paul uses this word in the context of poor, uh, richer churches helping poorer churches to contribute generously. Okay? And in Paul's context of those, those, those letters in Romans, in Corinthians, in Philippians, is financial giving. To contribute generously, to give generously all good things. In other parts of the Bible, uh, describes uh, wealth, it is, describes God's material blessings to his people, the necessities of life. So when we look at this verse, it means the one who is being taught by, instructed in the faith, should not hesitate to generously meet the needs of the teacher who eschewed a secular income in order to devote themselves to teaching, serving full-time. And that this is linked with a warning in verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That from verse 8, we can see what Paul has in mind here is an eternal perspective. Don't be mocked. When we see things from an eternal perspective, when we see the big picture, God will not be mocked. Let us not be fooled into thinking that we can give the best of our time, our energy, our money, our effort into our material possessions, into our stuff, into our wealth, um, maybe even our careers, and leave God our scraps. Our, our loose change of our time and energy and person and think that when we stand before God at the, at the judgment throne, it will be well for us. God will not be mocked. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, for whoever will save his life will lose it. And he's talking about if you seek to build your wealth, if you seek to build your own financial security, if you seek to build your own legacy, when you die, everything becomes Nothing. 
it becomes worthless. Our stuff is worthless in heaven. Our legacy will be forgotten four or five generations down. There is nothing, if you live for this earth, this earth will perish and everything in it. You will lose it. But what else does Jesus say on the other side? But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That if we devote our lives to his purpose, his kingdom, his gospel, that is what will last for eternity. That is what will, will, will last. That nothing ever done for God will ever be wasted. That God is not mocked. And with that in mind, that's why Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, when the time comes, we will reap if we don't give up. So doing the right thing, devoting ourselves to the gospel can be tiring. And maybe you find yourself discouraged by a lack of fruit, a lack of results. Why am I even doing this if no one appreciates it? Maybe, you know, it's discouraging. But don't grow weary because nothing we ever do for God, nothing we do for His church will be forgotten from an eternal perspective. And I want to take a moment to thank those who have been pouring in. You've been, you've been pouring in, you've been serving selflessly, faithfully, tirelessly, and you've not been doing so for the credit. You've not been doing so for the fame or the glamour. But thank you so much for pouring yourself into the church. And if you find yourself discouraged, remember that what you're sowing into God's church will endure and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That God's word, as we contribute to it, will not return to him void. And if you have been serving with no rest and you feel like no one is seeing you drowning, please don't suffer alone because burnout doesn't glorify God. Right? It's in our best interest to be caring for one, one another to prevent burnout as well. And now, burnout it's not an indication of failure or weakness, like, oh, I'm, I'm such a useless person because I'm burning out right now. No, absolutely not. Burnout is a reality that our resources are limited, that we have limits as a human being. And that's okay. As we see in our last verse, as we wrap up. So then as we have the opportunity to, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. So if we have the opportunity to, do good. Be generous with everyone. Help as much as you can. Yes, but resources are limited. Help where help is needed, sure. But when pushed, our decision-making should be informed by what is good as determined by eternity. And what is good, eternally good, is ultimately linked with the gospel. And that's where we come to our last principle in that believers are to contribute selflessly to the gospel. You see, the best thing we can do for anyone is to let them know the, the, the situation of the current reality outside of the gospel, that without the gospel, all of us are enslaved without hope. We are cursed. And that's the bad news. And the gospel is good news, that God brings life and freedom that's available freely to those who believe. And if one, being told that, told the gospel, believes in its message what happens then is an a decision of eternal significance has been made. Someone's eternal fate has been shifted. You have just made an eternal difference in someone's life. 
And isn't that a beautiful thing in which all of us, all of us here are called to participate in. We are all called to be witnesses for Christ, to be sharing of all the beautiful things and wonderful things He has done for us. We are called to, to be able to give an answer for this hope that we possess. We are called to love one another in ways that would befuddle the world, to selflessly love and forgive. And we are called to be contributing financially and otherwise to this work, the work of the gospel. And of course, there's individuals who are so uniquely gifted in one area or another. Uh, they, can, they, they are gifted in evangelism in a way that they sit down with a non-Christian and they just chat for a bit and the other person becomes really convicted. They're really good and gifted at that. But those gifted individuals do not ex excuse the rest of us who are normal, so-so, from actually doing the work. We all need to be part of the gospel. We need to be participating in the gospel work. That the gospel work requires gospel workers. And that's how God set things up to be. Brothers and sisters, we are saved to be so much more than pew warmers. Okay? That our Lord suffered a brutal death on the cross for more than just so, He didn't do that just so that we can be comfortable Sunday consumers on one hour plus on a Sunday morning and then be with our day. Jesus didn't go to the cross for that. The church needs its people to be involved in the work of the gospel. It could be as simple as speaking to one another, as um, deliberately setting aside time so that there's nothing waiting for you after service. You're not rushing off. So you have time to intentionally look around. Who is the person who's alone, who maybe needs some help, maybe looks a bit down, maybe needs a bit of encouragement, maybe just needs a listening ear. You see, if we don't create such space, it won't happen look around our pews to serve, to love. Or even in a more standard, formal way, to be serving. You can help out with the volunteer team, uh, registering people in, the sound system, um, you know, the choir. The thing is, for, for, for most things like registration and, and sound and whatnot, you may not have the skills. That's fine. You just need the willingness to learn. You need the willingness. So if so I know some of you have taken the first step of joining the WhatsApp group, the SMC volunteer group. That's an excellent move. There's a first step. Signing up the volunteer form, uh, joining the group. But there's a roster every week in the next three weeks. And the roster stands empty for most of the week sometimes. I encourage you, if you're already in that group, maybe perhaps put your name in there. If you know that you'll be there, if you know that you're available, serve in that way. And if you haven't already, may I encourage you, if you haven't before, take the initiative to put, um, to join that group by uh, going to the link samaries.my slash volunteer, right? And, and fill out the form, hey, I want to volunteer. I think I want to participate in this. Believers are a spirit-led community that is devoted to the gospel's work in each other. How do the people outside recognize that St. Mary's is a spirit-led community? shaped by the gospel. I hope and I pray that it will be in what we truly value, that we truly devote ourselves to the things that are of eternal worth by loving God, loving His church whom He loves, and participating in the effort of sharing His gospel, His good news, to those who need it most. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have called us to be so much more that you've given us true freedom in Christ, freedom to love one another, to be all that we can be as revealed by your word. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to be thinking about our lives and where we are right now, if we need to be obeying you, 
Give us the boldness, O Lord, to be having conversations they may need to be had. And help us, O Lord, if people uh, come to us with areas that we may need to grow in, that you seek that you seek to grow us in, help us to humbly receive that criticism, recognizing that it comes from you as well. In all things, Lord, we pray that you may be glorified in us here in St. Mary's as well, as we live as a gospel community led by your Spirit. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.